You are listening to audio from New Life Foursquare. For more information about our church, you can visit us online at newlifefoursquare.org. Part of my childhood, my growing up years, when I was, you know, from maybe one to seven or eight years old, was spent in a small fishing village along the southern coast of Mindanao in the Philippines, facing what they call the Celebes Sea. Now, before my parents moved to the big city, the only time we saw movies was once a year, maybe, or maybe twice a year, if we were lucky, because our barrio or our fishing village was landlocked. The only way goods and services were brought to our little town, our fishing village, from General Santos was through by a boat and all that. It was transported that way. There were no highways open yet at the time. There is now. Now, and most, if not all, of, of those movies that we saw were Western movies or war movies and starring the likes of John Wayne, uh, Anthony Quinn, you know, those Ginotri. Some of you know those names, and I can name names that probably say, who are those? But anyway, trust me, Hop Along Cassidy, right? You're, okay, good. Tom Mix. All right, those. And we just loved those movies because they were so predictable. All the bad guys wore black and rode black horses. They spoke with a snarl and chewed tobacco and they <laughs> spit with an attitude, right? And uh, they always. <laughs> and what about the good guys? Well, the good guys wore light-colored shirts. They wore white, rode on white horses, rode white horses, and from time to time they would stop and they would sit on the log and bring their guitar out and strum the guitar and they'll sing, oh, give me a home, you know, that kind of stuff. And then in the background you can hear coyotes howling, woo. My parents went to a Presbyterian Methodist church. Now go figure, what a combination. So I grew up in church, I went to Sunday school regularly, and in Sunday school it seemed like the people who wrote the screenplay for these movies had also written some of our Sunday school lessons. For example, when our lesson is about Moses and Pharaoh during the showdown between Pharaoh and Moses in Egypt, I would envision Pharaoh wearing black, bad guy. Moses, white, good guy, your kind of guy, my kind of guy. And there was, this, there was this one time, you know, we were babysitting, my wife and I, for our grandkids. I think Caleb, Caleb was the eldest, was about maybe five and a half, and Isabella, maybe three and a half, and Colin was two at the time. And when, when they are with us in Cerritos, or when we are here at their home in South Bay, when we are taking care of them, all three of them would want us to tell them stories or read a book when it's time for them to go to sleep. And they still do it to this very day, and we still do it as well. At that time, with Caleb, it was about Star Wars, spaceships, soldiers, army, police cars, uh, uh, firemen, that, that was his thing. Boy stuff, right? Isabella would be about princesses and 
Barbie dolls. Now with Colin, you can make up any story based on Toy Story characters, especially Buzz Lightyear, and he is a happy camper. On this particular night, Isabella and Colin were in the room together, and Isabella wanted a princess story, obviously. Colin asked for a toy story, especially with Buzz Lightyear coming, you know, and they would argue as to who goes first. And so to settle this argument, I made up a story of Buzz Lightyear coming out from outer space to rescue Princess Rapunzel locked in a high tower. And I'd and you can imagine I put a lot of drama when I'm doing this, complete with sound effects and music and doo -doo 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 -doo, and ham it up a little bit. I would turn the lights off. And as I was doing this, Isabella interrupted me and asked, he said, Grandpa, what, what, what planet, what, <laughs> what planet did Buzz Lightyear come from, Grandpa? And without missing a beat, I say, Buzzura. <laughs> now, you know what Basura is, right? Those of you from the Philippines, Basura is uh, garbage, right? So I would do that. Now, I will make up my own Star Wars, Princess stories, bus stories, and when it comes to the characters in the story, they would stop me and ask, Grandpa, is he a bad guy or a good guy? Now, nowadays, what I do is just color my characters and dress them up. White for good guys and black for bad guys. Obi-Wan Kenobi, white. <sighs> Darth Vader, black. We meet again, Obi-Wan. Remember that? But as I grew older, I got tired of all those John Wayne war movies and Western movies because they were so predictable. They did not deal with real people living in a real world. However, because of those stories of our childhood, we have heard and seen them so many times. And as a result of that, we have concluded that Jesus, like the cowboy or the Western or the war movies that we have seen, dealt with caricatures instead rather than with real characters. And that's what we see in Luke chapter 18, verses 14, 9 to 14. There we find two major characters in the parable. And right away, we've made up our minds. We read that one man was a Pharisee. Well, he's a bad guy. You know, since we have been conditioned to think of all Pharisees as evil, bad. He's going to be the villain in this piece of the story, so we color him black. And there is another guy in the story, however. The other guy, the other fellow, is a tax collector, IRS man. We recognize the tax collectors in that culture were not the best of men, but at least in this story, we are dealing with a good guy in disguise. So color him white. But did you know that if you were there that afternoon when Jesus first told this parable, you would not come to any such conclusions because in the eyes of good men and decent men of that day, the Pharisee was a religious and a moral success. 
In matters of religious practice, they were highly scrupulous and careful to do all the law required and then some. He could stand in the temple and say, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, robbers, adulterers, evildoers. I tithe all that I take in. I fast twice a week. Now understand that this Pharisee was praying the truth. He was doing an honest business, made his living without deceit. He was true to his word so that when he made a promise, you could count on it. He delivers on that promise. He was faithful to and loyal to his wife and his family in a day that was sexually loose, much like the day in which we live. And he declares, I fast twice a week. Now, in the Old Testament, the law stipulated that the people of God were required to fast only once a year on the Day of Atonement. That was all that was required. But this guy, man, is so devoted to his religion that he was doing it twice a week, Monday and Thursday. So you see, he was fasting more than what the law required. You've got to be impressed by his devotion and religious success. He also gave a tithe of all that he earned, and you can sense that he is more than a tither. So in those days, being a tither would not be unusual. There are a lot of people that tithe. Many people did. What he's saying is, his tithing things the law did not ask him to tithe. And most likely, each year, his accountant at H&R Block in Jerusalem figured up his net income and net worth at the end of the year, and based on that, he gave a tenth to God annually. So you and I can surmise that this Pharisee praying at the temple is deeply devoted in his religion. God was real to him as the coins and the shekels and the money in his pocket. And you have to admire him because he was willing to lower his standard of living for God's sake. And no doubt, his religion had done him a lot of good. He was admired by his peers, an outstanding citizen he was, a contributor to the community. I mean, he was respected. As a matter of fact, if you fail to notice, even the tax collector who came to worship that Sabbath day admired and respected the Pharisee. In our story, Jesus said that when the tax collector entered the temple, he stood far from his noble leader in this religious community. He did not feel worthy to stand by his side or be near him, so he kept his distance from him. Now, if you thought that this particular tax collector was a good old boy, willing to admit his limitations, then you absolutely do not understand the place tax collectors had in that first century society. They were despised of all men. Rome governed ancient Jerusalem and the surrounding cities in those days. So whenever Rome wanted to tax a city or a province, Rome sold the right to the highest bidder. And once a man purchased that right, he was given free reign to extort money. 
tax collectors were Jews and extorting money from their own people with the backing of the Roman government and the Roman military. As long as the Romans get their cut, they didn't really care much about the extra, how the extra the tax collectors would get or they demanded for themselves. You could not do business without doing business with a tax collector. You could not move your goods from town to town to town without stopping by his desk. And so, so many tax collectors in that day grew wealthy at the taxpayer's expense, living in ease and luxury while everyone else suffered in poverty. They were seen as dishonest, corrupt men who had sold out their fellow Jews for the sake of riches, for the sake of money. Despicable men who had enriched themselves by collaborating with the Roman government. And that was a no-no in that society as far as the Jewish community is concerned. Bribery was built into the job. Injustice was part of their trade. Understandably, he was despised and he was hated by most people. He spent most of his time with extortionists and evildoers and the sexually loose people. Now listen to this. If both of these men, the Pharisee and tax collector, were running for public office, we would do our best to elect the Pharisee. And for obvious reasons. Because if the tax collector got in, we would be certain that corruption had invaded our society. And if these two fellows were courting your daughter or your sister, you would be pleased to have the Pharisee as your brother-in-law or your son-in-law. You would not want the tax collector to be a member of your family. So with that, it is not so simple to know why Jesus decides the verdict as he does, it is not so easy to see why Jesus turns our values upside down. Hard to understand why it is that he commends the person, in this case the tax collector, the one that you and I would condemn and hate and despise, and in this case the Pharisee, the one person we would commend and extol. Why did Jesus, in this case, condemns the Pharisee? All right? But you see, like I said early on, Jesus was not dealing with caricatures. He was dealing with true characters. And in order for us to understand this story more clearly, we have to look at it more closely. We know that Jesus was not criticizing the Pharisee and the tax collector for being in the temple. Because in the temple, the daily sacrifices were offered there. And the women and the men through these sacrifices came into a relationship with God. We also see that both men are praying and Jesus is not giving them low marks for that. As a matter of fact, in the previous parable, he told a story whose purpose was that men and women ought always to pray and not faint. But as we listen to the prayer of the Pharisee, we get a little uneasy here. Uncom un uncomfortable. He says, uh, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, evildoers, adulterers, robbers. I fast twice a week. I give a tithe 
of all that I take in, I thank you especially that I am not like that tax, tax collector. Let me ask you, what is it that upsets you with this prayer? This man is conceited and it upsets me. And if you and I were going to give him a bit of spiritual counsel, we'd probably urge him to be more modest, more low-key, laid-back, understated. We'd say to him, hey, man, look, dude, listen to me, man. What you pray is true. We understand that. We know you're highly religious. You're a, a morally upright person, but look, May I suggest that you not pray like that in public, dude? Come on. Because you know something? It sounds really bad, man. No? It sounds conceited. So you ought to be careful how you pray. In the many varied an assortment of sins that people commit, one of the sins we particularly don't like is the sin of conceit. We like our heroes, the ones we look up to, to be modest, you know, gracious. Conceit has a way of putting us off. For example, when a football running back runs 100 yards and scores a touchdown, and then he is interviewed on television or on radio, we like him to say, you know, I made that run, made a touchdown only because of the good line in front of me, my men, I mean, have you seen the block? I was able to do that because, of, you know, I owe it to the guys, man. We're a team, dude. You know what I mean? You know, this is not a one-man kind of a thing. You know, we are, we are, we're, all, we're in this all together, dude, man. You know what I'm saying? I, I give them all the credit, man. I wouldn't have done that. I wouldn't have made it if I, if not because of, but this man did it for me, man. That's what we'd like to hear him say, right? We don't like for him to say, oh, yeah, man. Oh. I'm the best running back in the NFL, man, bar none, man. You know, see that beautiful run, right? I'm the best, just the best. You saw that run? Oh, beautiful run, wasn't it? Yeah, that was smooth, man. That was absolutely the best. We don't want to hear him say like that. I used to play tennis before my right eye was diseased with macular degeneration. Many of you know that. I can't see with my right eye. Now, if you beat me <laughs> three, three sets in a row, <laughs> all right, Peter. <laughs> and then you came bounding over the net. Saying, look, bring us. I don't know what your play is like, man. Ain't tennis. You know what I mean? Might I suggest that you get some tennis lessons or stick to table tennis? You know, ping pong. And you want to really work on that game instead of, you know, you, I don't want him. Now, now, look, I'm willing to admit that you are a better tennis player than me, but what I don't like or what I hate is when you have to admit it, telling me in my face that I should take up table tennis instead. What I would like for you to tell me is that I did some pretty good shots, Pete, right? But it appears that I did not bring my game today, Peter, right? 
and that he is just so lucky to have beaten me and that she's sure that next time I'd have a better game. Conceit has a way of rubbing me wrong. Has there ever happened to you? It has happened to me many times when I was in school, in college. I discovered that on my test, I got a flat C minus. <laughs> and there is this person next to me. He's looking at his blue book. And I ask, hey, what'd you get? And he says, oh, I got an A. Oh, no, make that A plus. That was an easy exam, he'd say, right, right? I didn't even study for it, man, you know? And I got an A plus. You don't have any trouble with it, did you? <laughs> and I'd say, of course not. I got double A. Make it triple A, right? You're willing to admit the person is better than student than you. It is obvious the class and the professor. What you'd like is to have him say you don't have, you don't like his conceit. Why? It puts you down. It rubs you the wrong way. Are you with me on this? But did you know that as far as God is concerned, conceit never makes it in the big leagues of sin? Conceit is a minor, minor matter. It is often a way of talking. It's often just bad judgment. Like that young woman who want, went to her pastor one day after service and said, Pastor, I have a besetting sin, and, and I want you to help me. I come to worship Sunday after Sunday, and, and I can't help thinking I'm the prettiest girl in the congregation. I know I, 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 know I ought not to think like that, Pastor, but I just can't help it, and I want you to help me with it, Pastor. And Pastor said, Mary... Don't worry about it, hon. In your case, it's not a sin. It's just a horrible mistake. <laughs> and he walks away and says, thank you for clarifying it. Anyway, this, this is often true of conceit. There are people who talk big because they feel small inside it is a way of covering up their feelings of inadequacy. As far as God is concerned, conceit is a lot like acne, disturbing but not fatal. The trouble with the Pharisee was not conceit, not pimples, not skin rash. The trouble goes deeper, so much deeper than that. He is in the temple, in the presence of God, and thinking that the differences that matter among men matter with God Almighty. The problem with the Pharisee is pride. And Luke tells us that Jesus told this parable to those who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down and despised everyone else. One of the symptoms of self-righteousness is a critical spirit because one of the ways we feel, rather we feed our self-righteous attitude is by comparing ourselves with others. We like to compare ourselves with those we think have lesser to offer than us, don't we? We usually look at their vices and we think of our virtues and then assume that this gives us a special standing with God. 
We have a way of cutting people down and lifting ourselves up and people uh, cutting off at the knees and we put ourselves on stilts on a pedestal so that in comparison we seem to stand tall or taller than they. Self-righteous people are seldom content merely to reflect on their own spiritual achievements. Their, hap- their, 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 their happiness is not complete unless they can look down on everyone else, comparing their own exemplary righteousness with the inferior attempts of those below them. It is not enough just to admire themselves in the mirror. They also have to say, mirror, mirror on the wall. Who is the most godly one of all? And then imagine that the Holy Spirit say back to them, you are, you are. When you find a proud, self-righteous spirit, you usually find a critical, judgmental spirit also. Whenever you hear somebody always criticizing other people, see it as a manifestation of a self-righteous spirit. It is a kind of insanity that says, if I pull your house down, my house will stand taller. That is self-righteousness and the way proud people feed their pride. Someone said that the Pharisee in Luke was like a man who had killed a, a, a large elephant, but who was killed as the elephant that he was trying to kill fell on top of him. And the stench, the smell that comes out of this passage The horrible smell and aroma has about it. The smell of fire and brimstone. It is the smell of grace gone bitter, grace gone sour. The smell and the stench of grace that has gone putrid and rotten. Here is this Pharisee. He was a man with benefits. He had knowledge of the scriptures. He had been brought up in a good environment. His upbringing with regards to his religious life, no doubt, contributed possibly to his character. But he took these things for granted. He thought that the things that was given to him made him a very special person of special merit and put him in a special standing with God. Even though he thanks God, he really is congratulating himself. And he was like saying, Lord, you have made good soup, good sinigang, good kare kare, beautiful pot roast, Perfect, but you could not have done it without good material to work with. And that's me. That is the smell of grace gone, sour, bitter. The stench of grace gone, rotten, and putrid. Listen, man, you can smell it in the life of some churches and their members who by God's grace have achieved a good measure of success, right? They're growing and they're expanding. Now they begin to think that God's special favor is upon them. They start comparing themselves with others. And then in order to show how true and special they are, they begin to look at other smaller churches, you know, that, that, 
may not be doing as well as they are doing in comparison to what they're doing. And then they make judgment calls and start to point out the flaws and defects, what they're doing wrong, and, and she's doing this, and so on and so forth. And they're carelessly then pointing out everything else they perceive to be wrong about the church. Well, you know what it is, what, it, what is equally disturbing to me, folks, is this. When they do that, there's no tears streaming down their eyes. When they do it, they are, there's no genuine concern. Their hearts are not broken. Their spirits are unmoved. They congratulate themselves. They feel pretty special, the, you know, the object of God's blessing, because they deserve it, and you and I did not. That is the smell of grace gone sour and bitter. That is the stench of grace that's rotting, putrid, and repulsive and moldy. Not only that, but sometimes you see and smell it in the life of Christians as well. <coughs> who have convinced themselves that they are better than others. That their spiritual experience is far superior than yours and mine. They really admit that they are not perfect, but at least they are better than others in the fellowship of believers. They, they, they show disdain for the moral shortcomings of others while ignoring their own shortcomings. I repeat, that is a smell <coughs> of grace that had gone sour and bitter and the stench of grace that had gone moldy and repulsive and rotting. The Pharisee, listen folks, the Pharisee was in, was in the presence of God. And in the presence of God, he thought that the distinctions that mattered among men mattered with God. In the presence of God, he had a good eye on himself, a bad eye on his neighbor, but no eye absolutely on God. We must be more concerned with living in the presence of God than with, I mean, than with hypocrisy. But look at the tax collector. Jesus said he stood afar off and beating his breast. This was something that women did, not men. And he, he would not even look up into heaven, folks. He looked down. When, 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 he, when the standard way to pray way back then was to look up into the heavens, he looked down and he kept beating his breast and looking down and saying, Oh, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. You say, all right, he was humble after all, but he had a lot to be humble about. He was a tax collector. The tax collector could have stood in the presence of God and said, oh, God, I thank you. I am not as other men. I especially thank you. I am not like that Pharisee over there. I don't pray long prayers in public. I don't pray like a religious type, you know. At least I know I have sinned and I'm willing to admit. And even if I have done all of these things, at least you know and I know that I am not a hypocrite. The tax collector stood in the presence of God and in his presence he kept beating his breast saying, Oh God, be merciful to me. A sinner. One of the benefits of living in God's presence is this. And listen to me. If there's anything you get out of this message today, it is this. When you really see God, you see yourself. And when you see yourself, you see the awfulness of your sin 
And when you see your sin, you cry out to God for grace, for mercy, and for forgiveness, and you receive it. The true believer in Jesus Christ is always more aware of his need of God than his successes in God. He's always more aware how far yet he has to go than how far he has come. Job is described by the biblical writer as the most righteous man of his day. When he suffered, <coughs> his friends <coughs> told him he was suffering severely because he had sinned badly, and Job denied that. He refused to accept that. Then at the end of the book, Job receives this vision of God. And when he sees this vision, he responds and he says, I have heard of you with the hearing of my ear, but now my eyes see you, and I repent in sackcloth and in ashes. Seeing God, Job saw himself, and seeing himself, he saw his sins, and seeing his sin, he saw his need of grace and forgiveness, and he cried out to God for cleansing. Isaiah was the cream of young manhood in his day, but in an hour of national and personal crisis, King Isaiah, that mighty king, died. Isaiah stood right in the temple and caught a vision of God high and lifted up, his train filling the temple. And when Isaiah caught the vision of God, he said, Woe is me, I am undone, I am a man of unclean lips, I live in the midst of a people of unclean lips. When Isaiah saw God, he saw himself. And when he saw himself, he saw his sin. And when he saw his sin, he saw his need of forgiveness and grace. And he cried out to God for cleansing. In Paul's letter to his young friend Timothy, he says, Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full assurance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am. Watch, I am the worst I am the worst. Now, did you notice the verb? It is not, I was the worst back there on the Damascus Road. You know, when I was persecuting the church, I was the worst. Not, you know, back then when I witnessed the stoning of Stephen. No, no, no. He says, I am the worst of sinners. Now that I have preached the gospel across the empire, now that I've established churches in the major cities, now that I have suffered persecution for God's sake and the gospel, I am the worst of sinners. Why does Paul say this? Because a verse later he says, Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. If you live in the presence of God and live in the light of his holiness, you will see your sin. And when you see your sin, you see your need of forgiveness and cry out for grace and for mercy to cleanse you. You never, never outgrow your need of forgiveness or grace. The person who has lived with God for years and years and years needs God's grace just as much as that man, that pimp, or that prostitute on Skid Row committing their lives to Jesus Christ for the first time. And the more you see God's light, the more you see your own shadow, 
And the more you become aware of your need of God's forgiveness and grace, and the more often you cry out for God's cleansing and grace and mercy, the more you realize how much God gives you grace, mercy, and forgiveness. You no doubt have heard of H.G. Wells as we close. H.G. Wells is a prolific English writer in many, many genres, including history, politics, social commentary, and, and on and on. He was best known for science fiction novels. H.G. Wells was no friend of the church. But years ago, he told a story in the New Yorker magazine about an Episcopalian minister. The bishop was the kind of a man who always says godly and spiritual pious things to those people that come to him for counsel. So when troubled people come to him, he always found this, there is a particularly helpful word to say to these, especially if he says it in just the right kind of tone and the right kind of voice. He would always say, have you prayed about it? You know, And it, if said the right way, it seemed to settle things down for those seeking his counsel. But the, the, the thing of it is, the bishop himself did not pray much. And, and he, had, he had life ripe, wrapped in a, in a very neat package. But one day, life tumbled in on him, and he found himself overwhelmed. And it occurred to the bishop that maybe he should take some of his own advice. And so one Saturday afternoon, the church was empty. He entered the cathedral, went to the front, and knelt on the cushion, on the crimson rug, rather, that was right at the altar. He knelt there. He folded, folded his hands before the, the altar and began to spray. And he said, oh, God. And suddenly, there was a voice. And the voice was clear, it was crisp, and it was businesslike. And the voice said, well, what is it? Well, the next day when the worshipers came to Sunday service, they found the bishop sprawled face down on this crimson carpet. When they turned him over, they discovered he was dead. And there were lines of horror etched on his face. Like he's seen a monster, he's seen a ghost. A terrified look that was etched on his face. What H.G. Wells was saying in that story is simply this. There are folks who talk a lot about God. Who would be scared to death if they met him face to face. Yet this is exactly where we're called to live. We're called to live in the presence of God. That is the secret of humility. Not looking inward at our deficiencies and our weaknesses, not looking outward at other people, comparing yourself with them, their vices against your virtues, your virtues against their vices. Humility comes from looking into the face of God, who is holy, pure, to see ourselves and our need for forgiveness, to cry out for grace daily. Seeing God is to see ourselves. And to see ourselves, we see our sin.
And when we see our sin, we cry out for forgiveness and for cleansing. And when we are cleansed, we understand what humility is. Thank you for listening to audio from New Life Foursquare, located in Harbor City and Norwalk, California. Feel free to make copies of this audio to share with others, but please do not charge for those copies or change the content in any way without permission. For more information, you can visit us online at newlifefoursquare.org.